0: We have been gathered these last few weeks at Jesus' feet as he made his way up on the mountain, sat down, and taught his disciples. And as he comes, he says that he is the one to fulfill the law. That is, he is the one who will show us finally the definitive ways of God in the world. This is what it looks like to live with the grain of the universe, to follow after God and live rightly. And yet, when he begins to speak, these commands are hard. I mean, were you here last week? They're hard, they're difficult. This stuff seems impossible, and as a preview, this week doesn't get much better. We must remember each step of the way where Jesus began, because the Sermon on the Mount sends us back again and again to the blessings of Jesus. Blessings on the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as we continue to listen to our Lord teach this morning, do whatever you need to to listen well to these words from the book that breathes life. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not ever try to get even with the evil one. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them the coat off your back as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you just love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you give warm greetings only to your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? So then, you are going to be a perfectly mature people, just as your heavenly Father is perfectly mature. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is right back to his you've heard that it was said but I say to you teaching clarifying and deepening as he would say fulfilling all the law and doing so he just keeps raising the bar higher and higher and higher for what it means to follow him There are three more commands we come to this week and we're going to look at each in turn there's there's no oaths or practice truthfulness The second is no revenge or practice peacemaking. And the third is no hatred or practice love. And then we'll look at what all this has to say to us together. The first command is against oaths. And on the surface, this one seems rather straightforward and probably the simplest of all of them. It doesn't refer to uh, swearing or cursing. It's specifically about the practice of taking and swearing an oath that is invoking some higher power or maybe a threat against yourself or one you love in order to give greater weight to what you're saying. To prove that what you're about to say is true or that you will follow through on what you're saying by invoking something else. I swear on my mother's grave. So help me God. Something like that. In the Old Testament, the Jews were instructed not to break their vows and to carry out the vows they make in the Lord's name. In other words, if you're going to swear on the name of the Lord, you better do it. And so for them, truthfulness was upheld in the community by the use of oaths. We uphold truthfulness, we practice being truthful by using and keeping the oaths. But Jesus wants us to go a step further and challenge us to really practice truthfulness by not swearing by anything at all, ever. By simply letting our yes mean yes and our no mean no. By speaking simply and plainly, by meaning what we say and saying what we mean. And this is about much more than just honesty. It's not George Washington and his cherry tree, I cannot tell a lie. It's about truthfulness. It's about what we could call integrity. Are you a person who keeps your word when you give it? When you commit to something, can you be trusted to follow through? Or will you flake out if something better comes along? Or bail if you don't feel like it at the last minute? Will you over-promise and then under-deliver, or over-commit and then let all of the balls drop? Let your yes mean yes, Jesus says. Let your no mean no. Let it be that simple. And then he says, anything more than that comes from the evil one. So what are oaths anyway? Well, oaths are actually kind of silly if you really step back and think about them. Because we believe for some reason that people who can't be trusted to tell the truth will now for some reason speak truthfully just because they've uttered a formula. It's silly, isn't it? To think that someone will necessarily tell the truth in a courtroom, for instance, simply because they have sworn an oath, so help me God. They may not believe in God. They may not think it matters. And who has the power to call down God's judgment even upon themselves anyway? At the core, Jesus is challenging this assumption that there are two kinds of statements we can make. Those accompanied by oaths, which must necessarily be kept, and those that don't have oaths accompanying them, which you should still keep, but, you know, things happen, so... eh. He's challenging and rejecting this split-level truth, these two ways of speaking. Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. You shouldn't need to say anything more than that. Practice truthfulness. Christians should be able to speak plainly and clearly, simply. And we should prove ourselves to be people of truthfulness so that we don't need to swear by anything to convince the world that we are serious. Frederick Bruner, who wrote a phenomenal commentary on Matthew that I've been using liberally in these few sermons, wrote this. He said, quote, "...the whole of Christian speech is to be invisibly oath-laden, transparently honest. When a Christian says, I'll be there, the Christian will be there. When a Christian says no, the Christian means no. When a Christian joins a group or enrolls in a course or accepts an invitation the Christian fully means what that act entails and is faithfully there. Yes means yes. By obeying this little command, a Christian's whole life is invested with the seriousness of an oath. End quote. Does your yes mean yes? Does your no mean no? Do you follow through do you practice truthfulness so thoroughly that there is no doubt in anyone's mind that you will do what you say, that they can trust you? Eliminating oaths may not seem like a big deal at first, but in many ways our whole civic life revolves around making oaths to one another. In a world where people can't be trusted to tell the truth, oaths were how we were supposed to show ourselves to be Trustworthy. The bar is now raised so much higher, such that all our speech should be taken that seriously. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Yikes. The second command's even more difficult it's a command against revenge. There's that Old Testament teaching, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which seems a little bloodthirsty at first, but was actually a means of of restraining and enacting justice in the world. Right, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means no more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It ends and checks vendettas and feuds, and it also establishes a standard of justice. The punishment should fit the crime, Jesus takes that restraint and that justice and takes it way deeper. Do not ever try to get even with the evil one. Jesus condemns our revenge, our retribution, our repaying evil for evil. And so he gives us some examples in case we're not sure what that would mean. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You mean, if someone strikes me, if someone challenges my honor, my personhood, my credibility, just take it? Who can do this? Our common wisdom may tell us not to get mad in such a situation, but to certainly get even. And we can do that usually in two ways, by striking back or my personal favorite, being passive aggressive for a few weeks until they get it. When such things happen, we assume we have only a small set of options. We can fight, or we can run away. We can stick up for ourselves, or we can run and retreat and just hope that it goes away. But as Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, he's not asking us to run, to collapse into a heap, to show ourselves to be trampled and allow ourselves to be trampled. He's asking us to reject the dichotomy. It's our lizard brain that tells us those are the only two options to address a threat, fight or flight. Jesus asks us to be creative, to find another, to seek peace. In this instance, to stand there, to look them in the eye, and to offer the other cheek. In turning the other cheek to our attacker, we confront them, but not with more violence, which only perpetuates it. Not by dispensing our own judgment and justice, which God alone is to do. But we confront them with peace and with ourselves. And what's required to do that is something entirely unnatural. It's requires the courage and the poise of faith. And far from weakness, there is great power in this restraint. But who can do this? Who can keep their cool long enough to find another option? Who has the courage to stand there and turn the other cheek, to not fight for what is due us and strike back in injustice? let alone Jesus' other examples, because he keeps going. If someone sues you and wants to take your shirt, give your cloak as well. In Jesus' day, they only had really two garments, an inner garment and an outer garment. If someone sues you for the inner one, give them the outer one too. Give them everything. But Jesus, what if it's a frivolous lawsuit? What if I'm in the right? What if they actually owe me something? Give them everything. And what if um, instead someone asks you to go one mile? Go a second, Jesus says. And this isn't just about someone asking for company on a journey. It's not going the extra mile in uh, service to your customers. There was a practice in Jesus' day that Roman soldiers could ask anyone and whenever they wanted to carry their stuff for a mile. Just a mile, but still to carry all of their junk a mile. And this is more than just an inconvenience. In... The Jews' eyes of the day, this is an occupying, evil, and unjust force. And you're now carrying their shield, their sword, all their implements of war with which they're using to oppress you and your people a mile for them. And what does Jesus say? Don't find a way to get back. Go a second mile. And then he says, give to anyone who begs of you. Lend to anyone who wants to borrow from you. Anyone? But Jesus, I can't afford it. And by the way, they don't deserve it. They're probably going to use it for drugs or maybe to get an iPhone when they can't even put food on the table because their priorities are all messed up. Anyone? Jesus says, give anyway. In each situation, we're degraded a little more. We face injustice against ourselves. And yet Jesus tells us not to repay evil for evil, but instead to give. This is the way of the kingdom. And this is the way that Jesus himself will live and walk. What Jesus is asking for us is to seek peace through meekness. We heard of meekness earlier in the blessings. Blessings on the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is not claiming the rights that are due you. In this sense, justice, defined as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, demands we strike back, we take back, we hold on to. But Jesus asks us to relinquish the right to establish justice for ourselves and to place things instead in his hands. A careful qualification is that Jesus didn't say if someone strikes your neighbor's cheek, turn their other cheek as well. Other parts of Scripture says that government is given the sword for a reason, to uphold justice, to establish peace. There are situations of abuse and harassment and discrimination for which we are called to step in on behalf of our neighbor. But Jesus would have us give the right to establish justice for ourselves back into the hands of God to trust that God will work all things out for us. And yet justice is not abandoned, though it may feel like it, when we give up our right to reclaim it on our own and in our own power, but instead we, we hand things back into the arms of the only wise judge to trust that in the last judgment, if not sooner, when Jesus returns, when Jesus sets all things right, then God, who alone can see into human hearts, will establish and sort things out as only God can. For our justice may not actually be justice. Our justice may not be what is truly deserved. And by handing that work back into God's hands, we are actually freed from the false assumption that in order for justice to happen, we must administer it ourselves. But who can practice meekness? Who can practice peacemaking when everything inside us cries out for retribution, to defend ourselves, to fight back, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the punishment should fit the crime? Who can surrender to greater degradation and injustice? Give up seeking what's rightfully theirs. Turn the other cheek. Yikes. And then Jesus just keeps going. To the hardest, I think, of all his commands. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Just the way we like it. But, darn, I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This must be the most countercultural and difficult thing Jesus ever says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. No one does that. No one has ever asked for that. This command is unique in all of humanity. No one else does this. Be kind, sure. Be courteous, yes. Be nice, absolutely but love your enemies, love them. And by the way, this is is the first time Jesus uses the you plural in these commands, right? Y'all, the other ones he's speaking to you individually. Here he says, y'all, this is a command to this new group, new community established and born in Jesus' name. Love y'all's enemies. Pray y'all for all who persecute y'all. Then you all will be called children of your Father in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on righteous and unrighteous. How can you just love your neighbors, those who are like you, and call yourselves children of God? If you only love people who love you, how is that special? Everyone does that. Even the worst people love the ones who love them. What reward will you have? If you only give warm greetings to your brothers and sisters, doesn't everyone do that? Everyone greets people they like. What about the people you don't like? How do you treat your enemies? That's the measure of the kingdom of God. That's the measure of love. The measure of love isn't how we treat those who have been nice to us before, who we already like, who look like us and act like us. How do you treat your enemies? Jesus, who can do this? I mean, have you met my enemies? In political times like this, with a country so deeply divided as ours, love your enemies? I'd rather just circle up with the people who agree with me and hurl insults at the rest. I'd rather degrade and belittle and slander. I'd rather build myself up by tearing them down. Love? Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? Come on, Jesus, who can do this? How can Jesus ask this much of us? We said last week that Christians often do one of two things when they find these difficult things in Scripture. They either ignore them, or they walk them back and make them easier. We're used to coming to difficult passages like this and, and trusting a, a skilled preacher in 20 minutes or less to convince us that, that Jesus would never have asked good people like us to do something that difficult. Or we just say, oh well, I'm not doing that. That's not how I see it. That's not how I've experienced it. I'm not doing that. We'll just pretend it isn't there and Jesus never said it. How can Jesus say these things? How can Jesus hold us to this standard? How can Jesus call us to so much? To say, not one letter, not one stroke of one letter will fall from the word until all's accomplished. To say, whoever doesn't keep and teaches others not to keep the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven who says in the end, we must be perfectly mature as our Heavenly Father is perfectly mature. How can Jesus keep pushing, strike again and again and again, making it more and more difficult, refusing to back off when we claim to be too frail, refusing to pander to us, there, there, I know you're doing your best, which is all I can ask for and good enough for me. Jesus refuses to withdraw one letter or stroke of a letter from all the law or the prophets. How can Jesus do this? A few chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, a young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? He says, well, you know, there's the Ten Commandments. He says, do those. It's a good start. And he says, I've done all of them since my youth. What more do I need to do? And Jesus looks at him, It says, one little thing, just one little thing. Sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. One little thing. And the man leaves. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples ask on behalf of all of us everywhere, then who can be saved? If we have to keep all of these commandments, all of these laws, if the way is this difficult, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, I have good news and bad news. For you, it's impossible. But with God, with God, all things even saving people like you, is possible. See, the law, these these commands of Jesus, this excessive righteousness he calls us to, it's a means of making us good. But that goodness isn't about our own striving and even our most earnest efforts to keep them. No, the goodness comes from being driven again and again into the arms of a merciful and just God. And these commands are the means of taking us there. Which is why Jesus began this sermon. Blessings on the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because as the preacher Will William keenly points out if you felt rich in spirit when this began by now by the time Jesus has demonstrated your lust and your violence and your covetousness and your sin everybody looks poor which makes you exactly the sort of people that Jesus loves to love What it looks like to follow Jesus is this. It's not mastering God's rules. It's not skillful reinterpretation so that we can make sure we are actually already doing everything he says. It's relationship with Christ. It's relationship with the one who commands us to keep God's commands and who gives us the resources to do so himself. It's falling into the arms of the one who pronounces blessings. It was also Will Willimon who pointed out that at the very end of Matthew's gospel, long after this sermon has concluded, long after the rich young ruler has left, long after the disciples have wondered about salvation, it's there that the risen Jesus stands and gives his commission Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples in my name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Wait, everything? I don't know if that's going to go over very well, Jesus. I don't know how many people are really going to want to follow everything. Everything. Even that bit about turning the other cheek. Even that bit about loving your enemies. Even that bit about giving away all that you have. Even that bit about not remarrying after divorce. Everything I've commanded you. And then comes the reason why living these commands is not only possible, is not only bearable, but even life-giving. Remember, Jesus says, I am. Am with you always. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we return again to your feet to call upon your mercy and your grace. For, Lord, none of us have lived up to these things. None of us have turned wholly to you. So, Lord, we bless you that as we fall at your feet, you stoop down low to pick us up again, to pronounce afresh your blessings over us, to come again, to renew us to cleanse us and to raise us to everlasting and abundant life. So, Lord, also pour your Spirit out upon us. Give us the strength, Lord, to keep these commands, to live in truthfulness, to practice peace, to act out of your love that as we go out from this place, to love and to serve in your name. Our eyes may be opened to a world around us that needs to hear these blessings too. That we, Lord, may come to reflect the light of your presence into a world that is just as lost and broken as we are. So come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.